just being able to serve a dish to someone that you don't know, a complete stranger watching them eat something that, you, you, you know, you learn a lot from it um, and how they eat it. Um, you know, not just necessarily the flavor profile, but um, how things are cut, um, how things are shared, um, all of those things that are so important that are incredibly hard to learn when you're, you know, either surrounded by four walls in a kitchen or, or just an open kitchen. You know, when, you, when you're watching someone firsthand, you really take a lot from it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The last year has highlighted a need for a greater connection to friends, family, to the produce that fuels our body, to the environment in which we live. Some were already on that journey in their own way, finding themselves and connecting to the local community through the things they love, namely food. In the digital age, with a global society, what impact does going local have? Joel Humphreys is the owner of Lost Boys Kebabs and curator of Maitland Growers Market. Joel, how are you going? I'm good, mate. How are you? Good. There's lots to talk about, but I'm intrigued about the Maitland Growers Market and how that gig came to fruition. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the... Lost Boys itself is situated inside the Cambridge, which is obviously the large live music venue. Um, and the boys that have that also own the Regal, which is really close to where I am um, in Hinton. Uh, and yeah, so they obviously said, you know, go and check it out. And I did. Um, and the minute I walked in there, I just, it was, you know, picture perfect for a grower's market. Um, I, I did the growers market at the tram sheds with Murvac. I partnered with them. Um, so I'd already sort of dabbled into it. Um, and yeah, the pub itself is a really beautiful old country pub with a good bit of grassland to the adjacent side of it. Um, big gum tree. So it just sort of plays into having a growers market there perfectly. Um, as well as being really rural, um, a lot of growers and producers, uh, you know, from my house, I sort of have to drive past two of the farms to get to the market. Um, really, really local. Um, it's, it's very small, um, but that's the way we like it. Well, tell us about some of the growers and, and how you made those connections because you're not from the area. It's a, it's a place that you moved to. What was it like sourcing and finding the right growers for that market? Well, so by that stage, I'd been here about two years um, and I had had a built a really good relationship with Al Brown, uh, sorry, Al Brown, um, Ali and Dylan, um, from Newcastle greens. Um, and yeah, I, I, I got to know a couple of farmers through them and then just ventured out and, you know, uh, met a few farmers in the area. Uh, and it literally just started like that. Well, what's the area known for? What's some of the operators that you have there? Well, this whole area used to be um, all vegetables, uh, and it's and now a lot of it is loose and, and hay, but there obviously are some standout growers there. We've got the good growers in Lawn, um, which are growing some amazing stuff. Uh, Pinehaven Organics out in Cessnock, which is sort of about 40 minutes away from here. Um, at Dennis and, and Morpeth, which is just opposite sort of uh, my daughter's school, actually, which is quite cool. Yeah. You mentioned uh, you first dabbled with the market idea at tram sheds in Sydney when you were working at uh, Bodega there. Um, tell us about what that was like pulling together and putting that sort of market in that new development. 
Yeah, that, that was lots of fun. It was probably one of the most rewarding projects I, I did there. Um, we built the tables for the market out of the floor, out of the Roselle tram shed, um, which was which was great. Um, and just got, again, got to meet some amazing producers. Um, had Prickle Hill Produce down there. It was uh, the Gourmet Potato Co. That was sort of their entry into the um, Sydney Sydney market uh, down there. Um, just, just to name a few, Dust Bakery came back, Brickfields. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. You've opened Lost Boys Kebabs a couple of years ago. Uh, tell, tell us about that and how that started and what you're doing there. So when I, when I first landed in, in Newcastle, I, I, and still am, um, the executive chef of Scotty's. Um, and obviously when COVID hit, um, that takeaway model, uh, it was, a, it was an idea that I'd been playing around with for quite some time, um, living in London, uh, where I was in Dalston. There were just so many amazing Turkish shokabasis. And, um, yeah, I just I just was always sort of quite moved by that food. And uh, and I love the idea of a kebab shop. And um, so when COVID hit and that takeaway model became, you know, sort of went into full swing, uh, sort of, it was good, good time to have a crack at it, um, and did. Uh, so I went out and I met the owners of the Cambridge, um, and yeah, now it's situated um, in the Cambridge, which is uh, yeah, live music venue. So it's kind of kind of perfect for a, for a kebab shop, and it's lots of fun. It's a really really fun concept. It's really not traditional uh, by any means. Well, probably our signature kebab is chicken. Maryland's uh, marinated in koji and then dressed in exo sauce with garlic yogurt and yeah, so it's wow. traditional kebab shop, but delicious all the same. What's the response been like to uh, this, is, which is your first sort of business on your own? Newcastle's just a fantastic place like that. Um, everyone's really, really supportive uh, since I landed here two and a half years ago. Uh, everyone's just jumped on board and. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's been really really well received. You briefly mentioned the impact of of last year with the pandemic and and Scotty's. What's it, what's it been like in in the region um, for the hospitality sector? Yeah, like everyone, it's uh, everyone's just had to to roll with it. Uh, that first shock when it hit was very you know like like for everyone it was it was you know you're kind of changing what you were doing every single day. Um, ducking and weaving a bit, uh, and I think the you know that that word that pivot for us at Scotty's was not easier, but we already had that takeaway model set up. It was a big part of the business existing, so to fold back into that, we just tailored the offering a little bit, and it was really interesting what people were eating and, and what people wanted. People would want a nourishment. Um, they didn't want all the bells and whistles. Um, you know, we were selling sort of large family style snapper pies with, you know, potato, got a little bit British there for a while, which is good fun. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. You've worked in some pretty amazing venues, which we can get to shortly. You, you grew up in New Zealand. Tell, tell us about the early days when you started to get interested in food and realized that's where you were headed. Yeah, so I grew up in a really small town in the lower North Island of New Zealand called Porirua. Um, my parents separated from a young age, and so I spent half of my time with my mum and then the other half of my dad on a sheep farm. Um, so 
yeah, food was always always around us. We were always growing and um, obviously working the farm. And it wasn't until sort of later in life where, uh, you know, to be honest, I finished school and one of my friends started cooking school. I was more interested in skateboarding. <laughs> my dad kind of gave me a year to, you know, delve into that and said, you know, you've got a year to skateboard and then you've got to do something. And I think I spent about two months skateboarding and uh, yeah, ended up jumping into a culinary course. And I remember my mum saying to me, I don't know how you're cheating, but but you are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, then from there, I just uh, finished finished schooling and um, worked in some really cool little Italian places in in in, uh, in Wellington. And a good friend of mine, Richard Lemont, and myself were running a little wood fire pizzeria, and yeah, got a joint bank account <laughs> with the move to London with a short stop in Sydney, um, which lasted about eight years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that short stop in Sydney started at Rockpool. And tell us what it was like stepping into a kitchen like that after working uh, in Wellington. Yeah, little uh, little little country Kiwi kid um, into the big smoke. It was uh, everything I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah, I, I I literally got off the plane and printed out my CV and, and spent the days just walking around giving – I had, I think I had a good food guide and I just walked into it and tried to give them my CV. Um, (laughs) That's literally, that's actually what I did. Um, And little did I know when I walked into Rockpool, um, someone had just sort of left. And uh, I remember Mike McInerney was standing at the pass and said, Oh, you know, I'm looking for a job. Hi chef. (laughs) Said, How long have you been cooking? And I said, Oh, it's, five or six years i can't remember what it was at that stage and he said i oh, know you're too overqualified and i said no i'm not and he, and he said what said, no i'm not and he said oh, we'll go sit in the corner then so I, I did i sat in the corner and um he let me sit there for a little bit and then he came out and spoke to me and i just remember you know just looking into that kitchen and just that all that copper and all that white it just it was immaculate immaculate um had a little chat with Mike. I think his first question to me was, why are you a chef? Which was, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, what was your age or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and he asked, asked if I wanted to trial tonight. So I did that. And, yeah, just started from there. Um, Rockpool's um, one of the most amazing places I've, I've worked. Um, incredible. Do you have any stories from chefing in those days? I know you worked with some chefs that have gone on to do some amazing things like yourself. Can you take us back there? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the chefs there are my um, best friends to this day. Um, Graham Hunt, Nick, to name a few. Um, and, yeah, it was just, you know, like like all O'Neill's restaurants, you're using the best of the best, um, which is obviously incredible as a young chef to see that quality of produce come through um, and just get to handle it firsthand and cook it really simply. Um, we were working and doing quite a progressive menu at that stage in Rockpool. Um, it was the original in George Street. And, yeah, I just I just couldn't get enough of it. I just I absolutely loved it. It was a fantastic experience. You moved to another really well-known and influential restaurant of, of that era, which was Bistro Moncur. Tell us how different it was moving to a kitchen like that. Yeah, I, I think uh, towards the end of my time at Rockpool, I, I um, my who I moved over with 
um, at the time. He was he was at Monker, and so we, we ate there a lot. And working, being trained in Italian, I'd always been so interested in French. And at that stage, there was sort of nowhere better to go and get that really solid grounding of French cookery than Moncur. Uh, so obviously very, very different restaurants. But I knew that it was something that I needed to do at that stage. I wanted to go and, and learn those classics. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. It was an amazing experience. Um, was a head chef at that point. Um, Tom Walton was Sue. Um, and yeah, it was just an incredible Incredible restaurant, it still is. Uh, yeah, it's. Yeah, I, I think you know, just doing those those classic techniques. You know, making twenty liters of creme pat or you know, forty French onion souffles early in the morning. Uh, those sort of those techniques really stick with you and stay with you. Um, and they have you know to to date like um, all those all those classics. You know, nothing can't be the classics here today. You know. You left New Zealand to go to London via Sydney and the pit stop was longer than you expected, but you ended up making it to London and, and working at St. John Bread and Wine. Absolute cult status among chefs. What was it like in that kitchen? Yeah, look, it was, um, you know, literally from from my time in Wellington, I, I, I had those books and that book at that stage and um i'd always wanted to work there so it was really high on my hit list to to, to try and to try and work there uh incredibly hard place to get a stage uh because you know you're working there next to people that had been there 10 years or, or plus and um it was one of those kitchens where you know every day was a little bit of a pinch yourself moment um you know, reading about all those those dishes and those techniques, and then all of a sudden you've got things like Welsh rarebit and you know polishing bone marrow or braising pig heads on your prep list. It's pretty pretty special, at least. Um, yeah, and just and obviously again, like like Neil at Rockpool, Fergus gets the best of the best. Um, everything's extremely seasonal. Um, game season was just oh, it was mind blowing. The amount of birds that we got through there like teal mallard grouse you know, just stuff that you just don't really get over here all wild shot as well so some of them still containing palate uh and just yeah just just absolutely incredible what did you take away from um, your time at st john uh that that simplicity uh i also found it really fascinating from the early from work from the minute I started working there where um extremely talented bunch bunch of chefs there. We had Lee Turner um as a as a head chef, Tristram um and Ben Spencerfield was one of the shows. Um and I I think when you whenever you get a bunch of chefs in a room, everyone's trying to do something a little little bit different, I suppose it's just it's just how we are, you know. Um, but there was always this utmost respect at St. John of uh well this is how it's done or Fergus likes it like that. Um, and it just, you know, everything was done a certain way. There's two eggs in that, not one. This is use oil, olive oil for that. This gets done in pig fat and everything got done exactly the same. So when the season came around, when, you know, when white asparagus came in, it just got served with melted butter and that was it. And that's, we didn't do it any different way. It was, it was the same season in and out, you know? Um, and I think having that on offer 
for a customer that they know what's going to happen um, is really, really exciting. So that consistency and that, that philosophy of a restaurant um, was just, yes, very, very strong. I skipped over a restaurant deliberately in your career because you were very much a part of Bodega as head, co-head chef with Nick Wong um, and then part of the team that opened Bodega in 1904, uh, many years later. Tell us about working with the Portanio group. Their influence is undoubtedly, undoubtedly amazing in Australia, but working with them and, and coming back to the fold to open a new venue, t- tell us about that time. Yeah, look, um, amazing people um, and, yeah, really, really influential in, in, in my career. Uh, I think me and Nick, we were going through a, a bit of a fixed gear riding stage at one point and we, we ran into Ben in Surrey Hills and um, in so many words he was sort of, he said, oh, me and Alice are opening up this other place. Um, it's going to be a little bit more traditional and we're kind of, we're looking for a couple of people to take over Bodega and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I think me and Nick rode like 30K that day and said about four words to each other and got off the bike at the end. And I said, I'll oh, just, just give him a call. And I think about, um, you know, three weeks later, we were working at Bodega. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, just one of those, again, one of those restaurants that um, is just so special. Um, just... I remember when I first started, Elvis said to me, he's like, oh, it's, it's like cooking in the middle of a house party. And I sort of thought, oh, yeah. And um, after a while, it, yeah, <laughs> it was just so much fun. Every service was so much fun. I've never been able to um, experience anything come, that comes quite close to that. Having people dine on the bar uh, at first was really, um, it was tough, uh, you know, because you, you wanted everything to look clean and perfect and, and um, you wanted say the right things and then after a while it, it, it just it made your night um getting to know people across the bar um serving them dishes that you were uh playing around with and 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 seeing them eat it firsthand and their reactions to it um my cooking personally grew so much in that time from just that interaction uh, which was yeah fantastic and i just haven't you know it's pretty unique space tell us about how you're cooking grew through that period and how it changed well just being able to serve a dish to someone that you don't know um you know if you knowing people you know you know that they're going to love certain flavors or certain things um but a complete stranger watching them eat something that you you know you learn a lot from it um and how they eat it um you know not just necessarily the flavor profile but um how things are cut um, how things are shared, um, all of those things that are so important that are incredibly hard to learn when you're, you know, either surrounded by four walls in a kitchen or or just an open kitchen. You know, when you when you're watching someone firsthand, you, you really take a lot from it, or less I did. After your trip to London, you came back, and as I mentioned, you were part of the group when they opened Bodega 1904 in the tram sheds. Uh, that was a very different iteration of Bodega. What was it like building that and creating that in a new precinct? Yeah, it was fantastic. Look, it was um, it was something really different, I think, to what all of us had done before and sort of in a, in a dining precinct. Um, building a restaurant with no walls or a roof was was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I sort of came on uh, sort of halfway through the the whole incision of it, and 
uh, it was fantastic. It was, you know, it was an incredible opening. It's probably one of the hardest openings I've done because it was so, so busy. I think at one point we had a team of like nine cooks at Bodega just boning out spatchcocks. <laughs> Pretty wild. Um, yeah, and uh, it just went on from there. I had an amazing team. Um, most of them that stayed stayed with me until I I, I moved on, uh, which was which was fantastic. And then did the did the markets in the in the middle of that, which was yeah, like I said before, a really really rewarding project. I want to talk about the food. You've been a head chef of two iterations of Bodega, both a bit different. How much had your food developed and how much say did you have on the food that ended up on the menu there, given Ben and Elvis's influence? Yeah. At, so at the original Bodega, everything was sort of ran through them. Um, and, you know, it was amazing at that point, um, not having that sort of confidence, I suppose, being a little bit younger of whether this was good and, and, you know, they were very honest about some things. There were some misfires in the bits, um, and that was at the, that was at the original, um, where me and Nick were. And then when it came to 904, that was much more, uh, my, my, my say of what went on there, um, which was, which was great fun. You ended up leaving and moving to Newcastle. What, what, what led to that, that move up North? Yeah. So I think, Oh, we were looking at moving north. Uh, we were looking at Byron, and it was just time for me to do something different. Um, I, 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 we wanted to move out of Sydney. Uh, growing up on a farm when I was younger, and having my daughter and in, in, in the middle of a city as she got older just didn't really check out with me. Uh, so yeah, we started looking. Um, Kate, Kate's family are from Newcastle. So that was always, she always wanted to move up here and the conversation was always, you know, where, where would, where would we work? What would we do? Uh, and we were visiting them one week. We were visiting her family one weekend and went for a swim and jumped out of the water and stopped at this little place that had a little grass patch on the outside, a little takeaway window and um, a really smart little wine list and ate, ate some fish and chips and had a nice glass of wine. And it was just, I was like, wow, this place is really cool, you know? And uh, I said, wouldn't it just be great if this had a little 40-seater restaurant? I wanted something a little bit smaller. 1904 was seated 90, smaller, something a little bit more that I could, you know, get, have, a, have a bit of fun with. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I uh, I said that. I imagine if there was a little 40-seater connected to this, and lo and behold, there was. We walked around the corner, a little room attached to the takeaway window. And so we jumped back. I called the owner um, and I was back up there the next week. And I think, wow. Yeah, I, was, I think we moved up three months after that. I, yeah, yeah, something like that. What was it like uh, moving up there and creating a restaurant? You're used to the, sort of the big cities and, and being part of some pretty groundbreaking um, restaurants. What, what was your thoughts in the early days of, of what to uh, offer? Yeah. Um, when I first started there, I, um, I actually, uh, yeah, I spoke to, um, Steve Hodges as he was a big part of the market. I said, you know, I'm doing this thing in Newcastle. Who should I talk to about fish? Um, being a seafood restaurant, it's obviously pretty important to have a connection. And, um, and he said, well, there's this company called Shane seafood, go and go and chat to them. Um, so I rung Shane seafood and it was, uh, actually, uh, Tony Wern, who I dealt with at Nicholas seafood for a 
I don't know, five years in Sydney before I moved to London. Um, and, and so we had just crossed paths and it was sort of like, Tony, Joel, Tony, hey. Um, and so that was, you know, like a lot of the groundwork sort of, um, you know, when you, when you start working with a new supplier, getting to know what they have and, and getting to them getting to know what you, you like, um, all of that sort of was already done, which was amazing. Um, and like I said, Dylan and Ellie Brown from, um, Newcastle Greens, what they were growing, uh, the first part, the first year of Scotty's was really what they were pulling out of the ground and what Tony was buying off the floor uh, in Sydney. Um, so, and that, that was, that was creating the menus each week. So at, at, when I first started at Scotty's, I was changing the menu every week, um, which was lots of fun. Tell us about your approach to seafood and, and the sort of fish that you like to have on the menu. Yeah, look, um, I actually, in um, as well as Rockpool, working uh, Rockpool, obviously I've worked with the amazing amount of Australian fish, uh, but I did a little uh, personal chef gig when I was in uh, London and, and, and Greece for a family over there. Um, and I was buying lots of seafood really locally. Uh, so I just, you was using so many different varieties. Uh, like, um, yeah, I, I like all seafood to be honest. Um, <laughs> I really do, mate. Uh, growing up in New Zealand, you know, our pastime was diving and fishing. So, uh, yeah, I sort of, you know, my idea of diving when I was younger was being knee deep in the water with a mask on picking up abalone, um, uh, which was, you know, that was, <laughs> that was sort of how diving was in New Zealand, at least where we went. Um, and yeah, so from a young age, I, I, I really, I really love it. Newcastle is a thriving city. How is the food scene up there? Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, the, the scene, the people, uh, like I said before, everyone's so welcoming. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a really, really unique little place. Uh, it's, it's been fantastic. I've, I've enjoyed every single minute of it. The connection that you've made through farmers markets and, and also the one that you started at tram sheds, has that sort of connection changed the way that you, uh, cook and deliver your offering to, in your restaurants? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I mean, having that firsthand connection, it makes you look at the food industry in a whole in a different way. Um, you know, supermarkets become quite foreign. We, as a family, we eat solely out of the market. Uh, probably 70 to 80% of what goes on our kitchen table at home is out of the market. So, yeah, it's and everything just tastes so, so different. Um, you know, even just a simple thing like carrots, you know, uh, carrots are all different sizes uh, and they taste like a carrot and they're not all the same size and they shouldn't taste like water, which they do out of a supermarket. It's, I went into the supermarket for the first time in quite some time the other day uh, and just looking at all the veg and the fruit, like everything's the same size, everything's the same color, uh, which is just not, it's not reality. It's not nature. It's not real. So um, yeah, having and being immersed in a market and working with farmers that closely uh, makes you very, very aware of that, which reflects what you do in the kitchen 100%. You've uh, 
launched Lost Boys Kebabs um, over the last year to great success. What, what What's your plans over the next year or two for the region? Look, I'd really love to open something a little bit closer to where I'm living. I, I live in a little place called Hinton. Um, it's a one pub town out of Morpeth. It's pretty cool. I love it. Um, and I think... Yeah, I think I'd really like to do something out in Maitland. Uh, it's where all the farms are close to from the market. So that idea is making sense to me at the moment. Uh, but these things change week to week, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, regional dining in Australia has really blossomed in the last decade. What sort of offering would you have in mind for somewhere that's so uh, remote like that? Yeah, I, I really like, for one, having a... Having a lunchtime venue, lunch is my favorite favorite time to eat. I, I love eating lunch. Um, I think I'm you know getting too old to eat now. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've always loved eating lunch. So I think having a very very seasonal restaurant um, with a menu that change changes weekly or daily uh, uh, that's 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 where I'm that's where I'm etching towards at the moment. It sounds amazing, Joel, and we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch. Good luck with everything up there. It sounds like you're on fire. Um, and we'll uh, talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.